You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. His name was Dave Farkas, and he'd recently taken up fly fishing as a way to meet girls. So far, it hadn't worked out very well. It was late October, one of those wild fall days containing a 55-degree swing from dawn to dusk, and Farkas stood mid-thigh in waders in the Twelve-Sleep River that coursed through the town of Saddlestring, Wyoming. River cottonwoods were so drunk with color the leaves hurt his eyes. Farkas was short and wiry, with mutton-chop sideburns and a slack expression on his face. He'd parked his pickup under the bridge and waded out into the river at mid-morning, just as a late-fall trico hatch created clouds of insects that billowed like terrestrial clouds along the surface of the water. A few trout were rising for them, slurping them down, but he hadn't yet hooked one. Trico flies were not only tiny and hard to tie on his line, but they were difficult to see on the water. He was at wit's end since he'd relocated to the Twelve Sleep Valley from southern Wyoming. He'd landed in Saddlestring with no job, and he didn't intend to look for one, except the damned natural gas pipeline company was challenging his disability payments, claiming he'd never really been injured. And his ex-wife, Ardeth, had contacted a lawyer about several missed alimony payments and was threatening to take him back to court. C.J. Box is the author of 11 Joe Pickett novels, which began with Open Season and Savage Run Through Cold Wind. His standalone novels include Blue Heaven, Three Weeks to Say Goodbye, and Back of Beyond. The latest novel in the Joe Pickett series is Force of Nature. Thank you for joining me, C.J. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. You know, one of the things about as I read these Joe Pickett novels is I think, did you deliberately go out and pick create a character who is the antithesis of every attribute we associate with the modern detective? <laughs> no, I, I wasn't that clever. Um, and, and I never, there was never an intention for one thing to write a series. Um, it happened, the, the very first book which became open season, um, in my mind, was a book about the mod, a contemporary Western novel about um, the Endangered Species Act and what can happen on the ground with well-meaning legislation. And um, the, the, the protagonist happened to be a game warden. So um, I never thought, you know, the world needs a game warden series. But, and then actually it was the publisher after they, uh, Putnam, when they, after they, they accepted it, um, contracted for two more books with Joe Pickett as the protagonist. So that's, that's how the series was born. But I still do, I really do like the fact that even from the very first book on that um, Joe Pickett is a regular guy in a way. He's a state employee. He doesn't um, figure out every crime. He makes mistakes. Um, he's always wrecking his truck, but he, he but he's very determined to get to the bottom of things. And I think that's his biggest attribute. Now, one of the things I really like about these novels are, you know, the importance of Joe Pickett's family and this very stable domestic life that he has, stable as it can be, with, as any domestic life <laughs> right. can be. <laughs> Talk about creating that and uh, the arc, of, a little bit of the arc of that over the series. Right. Um, and, and that, you know, that was something that was important to me with the, the first book as well, and that is that, um, you know, I, I wasn't, like, again, setting out to create a, a 
long-term detective type character and I'd always kind of bucked up against the the kind of typical loner cop with the baggage um, who's you know an alcoholic and you know trying to solve the crime and they never seem to take a fee and that kind of thing and I really wanted him to be as normal as possible and that's why I introduced the family and um, it, you know the, the all of the books go back and forth between the, the you know the plot and the and the crime and his family what's going on with them and in the first book he had two daughters the oldest being seven years old and because the books have progressed in real time um, in the in the current book the same daughter Sheridan is now going to college one of the things that uh, really interests me uh, about these books is the you know the his job as a game warden because that he has a lot of leverage he can do a lot of different things that's an interesting occupation it is and <laughs> it's really based on um, you know real real game wardens I mean they vary from state to state how much power and autonomy they have but in the Mountain West um, may maybe just because of the you know the low population and great distances they tend to have a lot of autonomy with their jobs in fact I've met real game wardens who um, pride themselves on never going to the uh, state capitol their entire career. They've never been to their headquarters and damned if they're ever going to go. And, and, I, and I kind of love that, that kind of persona and, um, because, and also because the game wardens tend to, they're always um, far afield. They can rarely get back up. Um, and at the same time, almost everybody they encounter is armed, even um, more so than like an inner city cop. So they're, they're always, you know, there are real life situations that they're in that they need to deal with on their own. Joe is, he, he's an ethical man, and I think that ethics and morality play a really big part in this, these series, and this is not unusual for a detective series, but I think Joe Pickett's ethics really stand out from almost anybody in, in modern American literature, and I think he's a really great classic American figure. Well, I, I appreciate that. I like that. That's, um, th that's, that's how I like to hear him described, although he has gone over the line a couple of times and done a couple of things that he later really regrets. But he does try to do the right thing. And that doesn't necessarily mean by the letter of the law, but what he thinks is right. And he tends to give his, his outlaw falconer buddy, Nate Romanowski, quite a bit of rope to let Nate do what Nate does and doesn't reel him in. So in that sense, um, he's not necessarily always doing the right thing. Well, um, and two, as we read these books, you know, we think of modern America. When I, when I say I live in America or I'm an American, people think of, you know, New York or San Francisco or L.A. or a big city. But what this book made me realize is that there's still really an authentic frontier in the middle of 21st century America. And it's not that much different from it was, the way it was 150 years ago. Um, you're right. And, and there is, and these you know these people do exist. And I, I was in uh, in New York on a book tour. And while I was there, I received a a comment on my website, and it was for, written by a woman. And it said, "When I read these books, it reminds me so much of my father growing up with my father." Joe Pickett says things my father would have said. Thank you for keeping the memory of my father's uh, alive. And um, it was written by Maria Cooper Janice, who is Gary Cooper's only daughter. Wow. And because I was in New York, happened to be there when that comment arrived, 
um, my publisher set up a lunch with her, and she told me about you know growing up, going you know hunting with Gary Cooper and Ernest Hemingway in Idaho, and how um, she felt like I was somehow channeling her dad. And you know, I, honestly, I wasn't, but I wasn't going to tell her I wasn't. And, but, but what I liked was that she sort of really fit into that kind of old-time kind of classic Western persona as Joe Pickett and thought of her dad. As pertains to the the game warden occupation, um, that's a, a it's a complicated job and it has a lot of responsibilities. So um, it gives you as a writer a lot of opportunity to treat a lot of different subjects. And I think that's one of the things that makes these books so very interesting because we can have a book that treats environmental themes or a book that treats you know how we perceive government or a book that you know has um, themes about nature and, you know, man versus nature or just, you know, small town Americana. And I think that's one of the, the real great virtues of these novels. Thank you. I, I appreciate I can't add a thing to that. That's one of the things I, I love about it so much is that, you know, I, I, you know, I try to not bring agendas to the books, but mm-hmm. I do have controversial topics that I try to present in a balanced way. And Joe Pickett kind of tends to walk through the middle of those, or or be in the middle of those controversies, <laughs> but also um, not only, you know literally and figuratively, and that he's always kind of thinks there must be a more reasonable way. But um, it uh, you know in every book there is a real issue, whether it's wind, like you said, um, whether it's you know wind energy development and turbines going up or um, eco terrorism, whatever. It's important to me that the books are about something besides who did it. When, when you're writing these books, um, say, for example, uh, the book on uh, uh, Cold Wind, mm-hmm. uh, you, uh, you have to do some research, I'm, I'm guessing, unless you, have, unless you own a wind farm. <laughs> right. And I wonder if you talk about, you know, as you're researching these books, uh, how does that change, you know, both the plot that you have conceived at the beginning and, you know, maybe your own perceptions of what you're researching? You know, it happens quite a bit, actually. Um, with with uh, Cold Wind, the book about wind energy development, I have to say I went into that book um, to do the research much more pro-wind energy development than when I came out. Really? Have, having done the research, because... Um, uh, what I found out, you know, by basically putting on my old journalist hat and interviewing um, people in the business is that, um, you know, the amount of subsidy that goes into generating a kilowatt hour when wind is much higher than anything else but solar. And it's hard to justify on its own. Also balanced against putting up 250-foot turbines in places that until then were pretty much um, empty. So I did learn a lot, and I, I added some of that, and I ch- changed the book a little bit, and I, and I got to climb one. Wow. I thought I, I was dumb enough to assume that there was elevators in those things, but there's not. It's just a single steel ladder that goes all the way to the top, and it starts to sway when you get to the top, and it scared me to death. But I was able to use that experience then in the book. Well, that's a, one of the most uh, intense scenes in that book. Because <laughs> I was scared to death the whole time. Now, uh, you know, once you were talking about interviewing people, uh, that uh, made me wonder, how do you go about, you know, conceiving a Joe Pickett novel? Does an idea come to you and then you generate the novel? Do you just, like, start at word one and let it flow off the tip of your pen? Uh, No, you know, it it still goes back to the very first book, and, and it's kind of a formula 
for, that works for me, and that is, first of all, to start with the issue or controversy and do the research on it and, and find some experts on both sides of that issue that I can talk to and, and get a pretty good handle on it. And then the way I look at it is how can I pull the reader through this um, theme in a page-turning way? And that's how the books develop. And then I um, do a pretty extensive outline, and then I begin and I write literally on top of the outline to the end. Now, do you do research and, like, interviews while you're writing, or do you do that all beforehand? Usually most of it is beforehand. And unfortunately, a lot of the most interesting things for me personally wind up on the cutting room floor because they don't advance the plot in any way. But if, if it gives me um, a better understanding of the issue, then I think that comes through, or at least I hope it does. Well, tell us some of the things that ended up from on the cutting room floor. <laughs> oh, um, one of my favorite books to not only write but research was a book called um, Free Fire that takes place in Yellowstone Park. And mm-hmm. I've always loved Yellowstone Park. And I was able to um, hook up with a guy who knew Yellowstone more intimately than anybody I'd ever met. And he showed me some things there that um, I didn't include in the book, but that were just absolutely fascinating, like a, a feature that they call washing machine. And it's a hole in the ground that, that the first visitors to Yellowstone used to throw dirty clothes into. And then about 100 yards away, they would pop out clean because they'd go down and turn around in the thermal and pop out and it's not marked in any way because they don't the park service doesn't want anybody to do that anymore but i couldn't think of a way to work that into the book other than just to say isn't this interesting so that that never made it boy that is really fascinating <laughs> what fun now uh, your your latest novel is a uh, force of nature and this is a, a pretty much a starts where the last one ended right and, first time i've done that and this uh, begins a very, uh, this is a very Nate intensive book. Right. So I'd like you to talk about, you know, just think about, we have the whole series arc. And one of the things I think you do very well are you deal with arcs, wheels within wheels. Within the, each book, we get a nice character plot arc, but they kind of hook into one another. So the series is developed and we've seen the family grow. Talk about how much of that happens, you know, in the planning stage and how much of it happens in the actual creation stage? Um, You know, I don't, I can't say, I wish I could say that I planned several books out (laughs) with each one. I don't. I take each book as it comes um, and then set in my mind, you know, the ages of the characters, what would they be doing, how have they changed since the last one, and then I begin. And I really don't think that much, you know, plan that much ahead. Um, with the Nate Romanowski character, um, he was introduced in the the third book called Winterkill, and I didn't introduce him to become Joe's sidekick. It was not my plan at the time, but he was such a an interesting character in that he was a falconer, um, a big guy. He carries the largest handgun in the world. He had a mysterious um, allude, allusions to his mysterious special forces past, and um, Plus, he has his own code and, you know, will do things that Joe Pickett wouldn't even dream of, like, you know, rip people's ears off <laughs> to get him to, to talk to him. But I, I wasn't sure at the time I introduced him what that backstory was. And as several times through the books, he would attempt to tell Joe why he was hiding out below the grid, under the grid in, in Wyoming. Joe never wanted to hear it. And that's partially because I didn't know what it was. But uh, a few years ago, I read um, 
the book, The Looming Tower, that won the Pulitzer Prize, I learned to write about um, the birth of Al-Qaeda. And there was an incident, a true life incident, that occurred in that book that um, on second reading, I realized that if Nate Romanowski was there during this incident, it would explain everything. And the timing worked, the years worked for his age. Um, I wish, I, you know, I, I'd love to claim I had this in mind the whole time, but I didn't, but it did work. Now, one of the things that's interesting in the tension between Nate uh, and Joe is this kind of idea of being on the grid and off the grid. And uh, I think it goes to that great quote you use at the opening of this book, the, 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 the um, Yeats poem, uh, the center cannot hold. And mm-hmm. Joe believes it can, and Nate believes it can't. That's well put. That's perfectly put. Exactly right. Talk about um, these uh, this kind of idea for you. Do you know people who live off the grid? You know, I can't say I'm, I'm buddies with any of them, but I've met a few, and um, I know they're out there, and you know, in the r- very rural areas in the mountains. Um, you know, there's always somebody who lives down this road who's nobody's ever really met. They've just they just know he's down there. And, um, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean they concentrate and stay in a community, but they are there. I mean, Ted Kaczynski was in Montana for the Unabomber for, what, something like 17 or 18 years in a community where only one or two people had ever seen him. Um, And he was just, you know, within shouting distance of the town. So, yeah, they're there. Well, talk about um, the the tension that, you know— that takes us, I think, through this force of nature novel um, between these t- two kind of opposing poles because Joe finds himself in a... Joe's moral dilemma becomes very explicit in this book. He, he, no more squirming around for Joe. Right. He's, he's got to make a choice. Um, does he flee with his family because his family's been targeted or does he stay and try to help his friend Nate? And... Uh, I guess anybody who's probably read the books can decide which way he goes with that. But it, it's it's an authentic um, dilemma that he's got, and he doesn't fall into it easily. Now, one thing that's really clear about all your books is one of the major characters is the Western landscape, and it's really beautifully evoked. And I'd like you to talk about creating some of these vistas that you create because um, I'm, do you photograph them and write about them, or do you just live in them and write about them? Well, I, I live in them um, because I, I, I do live out there. And, but, you know, what I always find is that it's, um, it's much easier to write about winter in the summer and summer in the winter and vistas really? when I'm in my basement because then I force myself to um, recall them. Um, and then I can put it down on paper. I'm not one to go out and you know sit on a mountain and describe everything around me. I'd rather go there and then recall it later because I think it's more authentic, if that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense because you're recreating it in language, and then that's the same way we as readers will experience it in, in language. And you know, one of the things that's so uh, compelling about these books is that uh, the sense of scale, because... Um, I've talked about this a little bit before. 
in the city, you know, we're all crammed together and we're all about the same size and, you know, we can kind of get the buildings. But out there in the wilderness, the scale is very different. Things are big. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot of space between people. And I think that creates a different sensibility for, you know, you as a guy who's plotting and writing and creating characters as well as a, as a, you know, for the reader to experience these things. It does. It, 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 there's a lot of pluses and a lot of minuses. And, you know, and the, the pluses being that you can isolate the characters in a way. Um, you know, in a, in a community where there's not that many people, all their agendas are pretty much exposed and naked and they can't hide from each other. Um, they're going to run into each, you know, they can yell at each other at the Forest Service meeting at night, but then they have to eat the same diner the next morning. So it does create some kind of tensions that you wouldn't have if they could kind of vanish into the, you know, down the streets. But um, another advantage for a writer is that there really are places where there are no cell phone signals, which makes things really complicated for a lot of writers, I think, where with uh, you know as many cameras as there are everywhere, cell phone signals everywhere, it's it's hard to legitimately isolate characters so that they don't know what's going on. Whereas out there or in the mountains, it's not inconceivable. I mean, I've talked to game wardens who who go to places where they can't even get a radio signal to talk to back and forth um, with their dispatcher. So they really are on their own, and that does happen. Oh, that's so interesting. How times have changed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, you know, to to think about, um, you know, a, a situations where there are no cameras, closed circuit cameras to go check and see what happened, you know, which is just standard operating procedure in law enforcement now. Uh, now, um, you have so many great, compelling characters in these books. They all really stand out, and and I really like, you know, um, Joe's family, uh, Mary Beth, and and the the kids. Um, Sheridan, who's his daughter, is uh, is a falconer. I'd like you to just talk. Are you a falconer? I'm not a falconer, but I really um, in the you know in the books I'm often asked who you know Joe Pickett is based on that kind of thing, and um, you know almost all the characters are fictional or or you know, that have been maybe based on somebody but then changed. The one character that um, I had did base on a real person is Nate Romanowski, and then the guy is a a friend of mine that I grew up with in uh, in Wyoming, who was a falconer, went into the Air Force Academy, into Special Forces, and I used to go falconry hunting with him. So what I know about falconry is through him, and I realized I could never be a falconer. It takes too much time and dedication to falconry. That's what you do if you if you choose that, and uh, and at the same time, it always the just all of the. The weird little analogies to life um, are, you know, accentuated with falconry and that, you know, a falconer can, can work with a bird for three or four years every day and the bird can just fly away anytime. There's no way to reel them back. And that's that. This book begins with a really great set piece and you write these wonderful set pieces. They're really compelling and visually oriented. And I'm wondering, do you like block these out? It seems, because I can see these play on a, on the movie screen in my mind just with perfection. And there's oh. a variety of them. There's a, the one that begins as kind of a nature scene and you turn like something upside down and there's a, another, there's a couple of chase scenes, there's some ambushes. So talk about creating these scenes and then integrating them into the plot of the novel. Well, you know, I, I mean, they just, they come as they come, um, really, in, in, the, in the narrative. 
And what I what I really try to do with those kind of set pieces is just simply, um, you know, describe them in the clearest possible fashion, uh, and really pare it back down. So, that, and but I always think, um, you know, I always th- in any situation or any scene, I'm always trying to think of all the senses. What you know, what does the light look like? What does it smell like? What is it? You know, wh- what things appear? What what do the characters notice about the area? Just very very briefly, hoping that. Um, it will make it more real for the reader. But I just try to be as clear as possible. Action is hard to write in a very clear way, and I think it's one of the most difficult things. Well, you do it really well. And that when you're talking about the senses, that just reminded me of one thing you do so well with the landscape is that I've never seen anybody who writes about landscape describe the sounds as much as you do. And, and, and it's not too much, but it's just the sounds that you evoke really give a sense of the, the hugeness of the sky and the land. And I think that's interesting. Do you, do you record them? I just try to recall them or notice <laughs> them at the time and remember it for later. Let's talk about uh, Nate and his special forces history. This is very interesting, and it's a lot of you're clearly having a lot of fun as a, as a writer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> did you now this started with the, the previous book? So this is like a, did you, were these two books already, did they like exist as one book in your mind and get split up or did they happen kind of one after another? They did happen one after the other, but what I did decide at the end of Cold Wind, the previous book, Mm -hmm. was that um, now was the time to do the Nate Romanowski book, which Mm -hmm. I've been asked about for years. And so I, for the first time in, in, in my books, at least I had one book lead right into the other, literally the next day. But I can't. I didn't conceive it as a two-book project. I just, it, while writing Cold Wind, I thought now's the time. Now that I know his backstory, and the arc is working just right, now's the time for the Nate book. As a Nate book, you know, you you have a a responsibility to your readers to also provide a Joe Pickett novel at mm-hmm. the same time, and you do a great job at this. I mean, it's really satisfying for both characters. Um, this must have been some kind of tension for you as a writer. It was it was different because um, to have the main character Joe Pickett take a back seat, in fact, in, in this book, um, was certainly different. And and it, what I found was, you know, Joe writing about Joe is pretty comfortable for me, having done it for a dozen books. And what I would find myself writing is it was like, oh, I can slip back into Joe again for a while. <laughs> then we get back with Nate, and so you know, people's ears will be ripped off. <laughs> And going back and forth like that was was a strange experience, but it was it was fun, and hopefully it's rewarding. You know, one of the things about Joe that's so interesting is that I think that as our you he seems so real to us. And I was thinking this: there's one particular scene in here early on in this book where um, he's looking at the scene of a murder, and he's he even he's disturbed by it. But you as a writer describe it, <laughs> and that gives us this kind of real depth of perception, I think, that makes him so real is that you're able to give us both what we might see that would repel us, and he gets to look away. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's a really interesting way of putting it. I didn't, I've never thought of it that way, but that's, that, that's good. Yeah, Joe Pickett, it, he does tend to look at crime scenes and then go throw up. He's, been, <laughs> he's not gotten very good at that yet. Well, I think that's one of the things that makes him more appealing, I think, than uh, somebody who's, you know, 
going to go on about fava beans because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because he's uh, he seems more human I think than you know than most of us. Well, I think uh, and I hope that it works on two levels. One is that. Um, readers can identify with him because he's very much a real person. Mm-hmm. Makes mistakes, not always, always has a lot of self-doubt sometimes, um, even though he does tend to have this real bullheaded quality about him. But the other thing is I think it creates um, more tension and suspense in the books and in certain scenes because you can't, you, you're just not sure he's going to do the right thing or <laughs> figure out what he needs to figure out when he needs to figure it out. Uh, and, and I think that that sometimes... Um, you know, for a reader, that 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 can just add tension to it because you just just you know, he Joe could do anything. Well, that's a really interesting observation because yeah, that that does make it more exciting because um, as a writer, you're giving the readers more than sometimes than the the characters have to work with, and we can see kind of where things are going, maybe where Joe can't, and yet, so we get to see the witness his. Uh, decision process and that makes him a more human character too so because we can see him deciding and sometimes he makes the wrong decisions and that that is one of those things that I I bristle at a little bit I don't hear it so much anymore but I remember um, hearing you know some readers who were more used to more traditional detectives kind of saying oh is is Joe Pickett ever going to get smart you know is he ever going to smarten up and figure these things out and um, there is something to that but also you know I'd point out as a character, he only knows what he knows. He's not the reader. He hasn't been reading the other characters, too, and the, and know the other points of view. Only the reader knows that. So remember that as you, you know, read this book. Well, uh, that's that's an interesting point because we as readers tend to forget that. Mm-hmm. And 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 um, putting this book together is, a, is really a lot of fun because we do get um, this variety of viewpoints. And as you as a writer... How much control do you have over, you know, what happens, for example, what Nate does? He doesn't seem like a character who is willing to, like, accede to a writer's control. Oh, that's an interesting way to put that. Um, He does kind of tend to to take on a life of his own. And even though I do, um, you know, do a lot of outlining and planning ahead of time, there's always something that will happen, something Nate will say or do that I didn't have planned when I started the book. And it just, it's one of those things, it's, it's, it's totally unexplainable how that happens, um, how a character can kind of take over. But that was always something I was a little worried about with doing a Nate book was I was afraid that, it, that his character is such a uh, larger-than-life character that I'd really want to just keep writing him. And um, having written this one, I can say there's not going to be a Nate Romanowski series, but I think this was this was a lot of fun. Well, he's literally a force of nature. He is. <laughs> yes, he attains the state of Yarok, which is a falconry term for um, the very, very rare time when a, when a falcon hits per- perfect pitch and um, is able to. It's at the ultimate fighting time. In, in a bird's life, they call it the state of Yarok. And that's a really interesting uh, part of this book, the way you weave the falconry lore, uh, not just through the plot, but through the themes and through the characters as well. Was this something that was in your outline? It was, um, but it developed even more so, uh, and mainly because the, 
the guy who is after Nate Romanowski in the book, and this isn't giving much away, is his former boss and mentor in Special Forces who is also a Master Falconer. And Nate will even concede that he's much better than Nate is. Um, so by having you know the, the falconry theme and then the hunt and the hunted along the falconry theme is just kind of like a writer's dream. Now, uh, one of the things I, I think is you do very well is dealing with animals in this book and there's a there's a really great uh, there's a very poignant scene in here that deals with an animal and it has to do with and I don't want to necessarily give it away but I, I'd like you to just talk about um, handling animals and, and you know when losing pets and uh, sending them on their own and, and and I think this is you know it's a tough thing to write about without sliding into soap and I, I really do try to do that I mean um, obviously Joe Pickett's a game warden, which means he's dealing with lots of hunters and there's lots of dead animal bodies. But they aren't hunting books. And, um, you know, I, I try to portray those kind of things in real life. I mean, I live, where I live is out in the country. Um, we have horses, we have dogs, um, coyotes eat our cats. You know, things like that happen all the time. And, of course, you, you, you miss those animals, but you can't, I don't, I don't like to... Um, over-sentimentalize nature in the books. No, no, I don't think you do. Now, um, one thing that's happened through the books is that they've grown darker. And, I mean, (laughs) things have kind of gotten uh, tougher and more disturbing. And is this something that you expected, or is this just a reflection of uh, our world over the past uh, dozen or so years? I guess a little bit of both. I, I mean, I, I don't intend to do that. I'm not thinking along those lines. But I think, um, you know, following Joe Pickett and the things he's been involved with, um, yeah, they have grown darker. And, and sometimes I wonder where that's coming from. I don't have a great explanation for it. I think it's more realistic in a lot of ways. We talked a little bit about Joe's morals, but in this book, it's a, like a plot point. And I think having the morals and, and ethics as a plot point is a really interesting way of dealing with it because it's generally tied as a character or a theme or something. But um, talk about uh, creating a plot out of somebody's moral decisions. Oh, wow, that's that's very interesting. I mean, I mean, it was Michael Connolly, actually, one of the time when I was first starting writing, I read an interview with him when he when he stressed the important thing um, to writing was tension on every page, make there sure there's tension on every page, and I really took that to heart. And and one of the greatest tensions is not only, um, you know, how the plot is developing, who's in danger, what's happening, but also how are the characters feeling about it and dealing with it. And that that's where the morality comes in, so that you know things are happening, but how are they affecting the characters, and how are the f- characters letting themselves be affected. There's one character who's kind of doesn't play a big part, but I really liked her a lot. Who who is a uh, Pam, Pam, Pam? Yes. <laughs> Talk about creating these kind of uh, uh, the rural characters. Are they're very you know vivid and entertaining, and I think again they help fill in your universe and make it seem more real. Yeah, and she's a, she's a woman who turns out to be a widow, um, <laughs> having lost her husband and son who. She met her son at a rodeo, or her husband at a, at a rodeo, and I think there's a, I, I can't remember, recall the line exactly, but when, when, he, when she finds out that her husband is dead, she calls the hospital 
to see if anybody wants to do an autopsy of a loser. <laughs> find out what's inside a loser. Yeah. Right? Find out what's inside a loser. Yeah. It's a really great line. And I think that's a, something that um, you do well is that you uh, give us these kind of a mindset that you know, are vivid and memorable. And you, you, we also have a, a vivid and memorable, you know, scenes in the Indian reservation. And again, you underplay this. I think that's, I think, one of your virtues as a writer is that everything is, um, un, to a degree, it's underplayed. It's, it's, it, it just kind of happens and seems realistic without seeming uh, overly dramatic. Thank you. I, I, I want to think that, that, that part of that is, is, you know, you've got to, You've got to credit your readers for their intelligence and not over-explain things and keep driving every point home over and over. And that's one of the things sometimes I read in books that annoys me to no end. Is that I just want to grab that author and shake him and say, I got it the first five times. You know, I'm not dumb. And, and I think it's just better just to let the, the scenes play out without um, stepping back, being omniscient, and saying, now this is what this means. You know, now, um, I, one of the things that that I was very interested in was a Sheridan and her and falconry and and Nate. I, I'm, I, are, is uh, Sheridan going to end up in special forces? <laughs> I don't have the answer. Not I'm not trying to avoid the question. I'm not sure the an- what the answer is that with that one yet. I'm kind of wrestling with that because Sheridan's now in college, and which direction is she going to go? Um, I don't know. You know, I'll know in a couple of years. <laughs> Uh, it, now you have uh, written some books that are outside of this series, and um, Blue Heaven is one. And I'd mm-hmm. like you to talk about, you know, the uh, creation of that book, which is really an interesting, uh, uh, you know, concept. I mean, who knew? Yeah, a, a Blue Heaven, um, and that's this a reason why it's a standalone. Is because it could not be a Joe Pickett book. Um, a few years ago, I was doing a book tour um, in Southern California. And in one of the bookstores that's frequented by the LAPD, I don't know why, but um, which bookstore? Uh, um, Carnival um, Book Carnival Book, book Carnival. Carnival. Yeah, oh, yeah, I know Book Carnival. It, yeah, and it, and they even had a um, a couple of the the off-duty cops would come in and help with the signing, that's which in, is kind of fun. In, in orange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I've been there many times. And while I was there, um, one of the one of the cops said, "Oh yeah, I've got I've had a bunch of." Uh, friends retire from the force and they all move up to that blue heaven country where you live and I'd never heard the phrase and I didn't know if about that in Wyoming it turned out it wasn't Wyoming it was northern Idaho um, where Mark Furman went and um, when it, it, the idea intrigued me that I, of um, it turns out over a thousand LAP ex-LAPD had moved to north Idaho um, and something like 800 um, LA firemen when they retire and could sell their houses for a lot of money and buy land up there. And just the, the whole concept of, um, you know, big city cops in a very rural area um, intrigued me. So I, I went up there and did some interviews with some of the locals and a couple of the ex-cops, and the story came from there. And then it went on to to win the Edgar Award for Best Novel. <laughs> now, uh, you, you mentioned this a couple times about doing interviews, and I, I really like that idea. I, and talk a little bit about how your you know work as a journalist has informed your work as a novelist. I th- I find it um, I it, I think it's one of the um, the best things I've got, and, and that is where I can just go put on my old journalist hat and and 
ask people, you know, interview them about their, their lives, what certain aspects are like, but, all, but more specifically as it relates to the plot, um, whether it's their, their job or whatever. Um, experts love to talk about their field, and they want to see their fields portrayed accurately. And it, it amazes me how many times I'm talking to somebody who's like a petroleum engineer because I want to get that part of the story right where they'll say, you know, I thought of a way that, it, you know, somebody could die out in the field that no one's ever thought of before. And I find it everybody's always thinking about that. I wrote a book called Below Zero um, where in the end uh, some bad guys want to sabotage a coal-fired power plant for environmental reasons. And I did a tour of a coal-fired power plant, and the, the guy who was the tour guide explained to me how you could take that plant down um, several different ways. Just one person. I couldn't believe they were telling me this, but everybody's always kind of thinking along those lines, and that's what you get from interviews. Well, too, I think that the interviews are part of, uh, must be because when people, when you interview somebody, they're telling you their story. And I think that that's what gives your book such a strong sense of story because we have these, you know, the, in, in uh, the latest book, it's really a Nate book, and we really get his, his story. His story carries us through the book literally, and it's, a, it's an action-packed book too. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I think, I think what that is, um, I, and I think some writers make this mistake, and that is that characters are introduced solely to advance the plot. And th- but they, they, they're not real people. They're just there to move the action along. And what I always try to remind myself is that these are real people. They have families. Um, maybe give a little bit about their background. How did they get there? Like Pam, you mentioned earlier. I think it makes the book a lot more um, nuanced and interesting that you realize that those, those characters don't just exist for the writer to manipulate. Now, um, these books are incredibly cinematic, all of them. I mean, we they play very well like movies inside our head. And though I don't think any movie could match the book, uh, <laughs> how many? How much of these have been? Have these been optioned at all? Or where? sure, there's not been a movie yet. But um, even from the first one, open season was was optioned um, right out of the gate. And oh, really? Since th- and then finally, um, you know, went away. Uh, but uh, nowhere to run is currently under option. Blue Heaven was optioned um, about three years ago. It's still under option. And I, I did a call with a producer a few weeks ago, and he's pretty convinced that it's going to start filming this fall. They've got, they've got actors, they've got the money, they've got the script, and he's just ready to go. So we'll see if that happens. Now, um, uh, are you working on a new Joe Pickett novel or um, another standalone? I just completed a standalone about three weeks ago that will be turned in this fall. So I have no idea when it will come out. And then I, yes, um, have started a new Joe Pickett for next year. Well, tell us a little bit about your upcoming novel, if you can. Well, it's um, in Back of Beyond and in Three Weeks to Say Goodbye, I had a character named Cody Hoyt, Mm -hmm. who's a typical troubled cop, uh, Mm -hmm. even more so, that I was talking about earlier. And it's a fun character to write. And he, he is in this new book as well. And it's about... I can't tell you what the premise is because it's too good. I don't want anybody to take it because I don't know when the book's going to come out. <laughs> but I'm excited about it, and it's by far the scariest thing I've ever written. Well, that's gonna it's going to have uh, some competition from this current book, which I think is, is very tense and very intense. And yeah. when you write books, 
like this, that at this level of intensity, do you kind of worry about that? Or, you know, do you think you might have to ratchet it back or ratchet it up? I No, I, I, I do kind of worry about that because the, the body count in this book is tremendous. Um, but it, I also know it's kind of a one-off. I mean, it's a Nate book. It's the culmination of, of all the things that have happened. Um, I don't feel, in fact, I know that it wouldn't be a good idea to continue um, each book at a higher level and a bigger body count because um, that would burn me out and I think it would burn the readers out too. And there's only so many people who live in 12 Sleep County, Wyoming. I can't kill them all. <laughs> uh, you know, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is you're, I think, one of the best writers about environmental uh, causes and, you know, and, and, you know, our current concerns about the environment. And you do a great job of taking, you know, abstract big ideas that, you know, have this argument on this side and this good argument on that side and, you know, you can kind of go back and forth and giving those like a plot and, and you know, a toe-tapping story. And that's an interesting, that's a really interesting talent and skill. Thank you. Um, well, you know, I just think, I mean, nobody's going to be interested in, in reading a a long, dry essay about wind energy development or, um, you know, some of the other coal bed methane development that I, that I write about. But I think that um, as long as it's carried by uh, a very strong plot and action, then those things become interesting. And, and, and I think, um, you know, one of the authors I love is Elmore Leonard, and um, he tends to do that. I mean, I, I've learned things in his books unrelated to the plot um, about dredging the Mississippi River and those kind of really practical nuts and bolts sort of things that I take away from the book. And I, I, I tend to take those things away. I don't remember who killed who or who did it in the end, but I remember I didn't realize that that's how you can dredge the Mississippi River. And I think that's an important thing to, to have in every book. I've been talking with C.J. Box. His new book is Force of Nature. Thank you for joining me, C.J. Thank you. It's been fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.